Welcome to the second season of the podcast Rise and Play. We are Sophie Vu and Carla Reyes, your hosts for this special season. In this series, we will focus on portraits of women who have an outstanding career in games. How did they get into games? How did they reach their high position and career? What have been their personal and career choices to get to their level, and why? We want to bring more light to the wide range of career paths available for women in leadership positions in the industry. And we hope this will inspire you to aim for higher in your career too. Let's begin. Today, I am very thrilled to have Delphine Sassi with me. Delphine has 14 years of experience in the gaming industry, mainly casual games, starting as an art director and then shifting to production roles before becoming head of experimentation of Candy Crush Saga, her current role. Delphine is passionate about building highly effective and engaged teams that delight the players with experiences that matter to them. Hi, Delphine. Nice to have you. How are you today? Very good. Super excited to be here today with you. I'm a big fan of, you know, your podcast and what you do with Rice and Play. Uh, and I'm delighted to be able to share my experience today. So thanks for having me. You're welcome. Let's begin. I like to start also all my interviews with, you know, what's happening today. So what is the thing that is the most exciting for you today in your life at the moment? So I, I think I have almost like 50 things <laughs> that are very exciting and I like to write them down all. So I have quite a big backlog of things I'm excited about. But if I were to mention one, and it's still very green, but I have this idea of, you know, sharing my experience as a non-professional athlete and how sports help me every day in my professional life. So for, for me at the end, you know, life is like a marathon with some sprints and obstacles. It's funny actually to think that when you are a professional athlete, you train very hard to overcome those obstacles and events. But when you study to get ready for your first job, it's often very theoretical. And most of the time you start your first job very unprepared to the unexpected, to those obstacles and this marathon ahead. And I believe that in that sense, as I started to do sports very young, it helped me build you know, some core values that shaped who I am today. And that helped me in some ways to climb this uh, ladder. So things such as resilience, tenacity, you know, discipline and hard work, but also collaboration, being a team player, understanding each other's strengths and the team dynamics, but also listening to your body, your mind, you know, this inner work, knowing your limits while pushing them. So being curious, learning to unlearn and relearn and being very uh, adaptable to things. And there are many practical things, you know, that I really apply in my day to day as a professional and as a leader, like setting goals for myself. What do I want to achieve in a year and how will I get there? How do I measure the right things to get there? How do I take these kind of small steps to get uh, better and make sure to celebrate achievements and so on? And I've been attending a few webinars recently where people like Colin Jackson, you know, is a famous athlete specialized at the time in 110 meters hurdles, or even Serena Williams were invited among other leaders in different industries to actually talk about how to reach peak performance, how to be your better self. And there is so much in common between how they train and the techniques they apply, the ones we could use and I'm currently using at work. So I'm not a professional athlete, 
but I once shared this topic in a presentation to my studio. Actually, it resonated a lot with people. And as there are more and more people, you know, realize the importance of work-life balance and exercising. I'm very excited to see how I could explore this topic further and exchange with people around sports. And that's not only a great way to feel better physically, but also a great way to become a better professional, a better person. So as of today, my idea would be to write a book, maybe, you know, with other leaders who are also athletes. I don't know if the book is the best format. So actually, maybe a call to action, you know, for people listening to this podcast, like if you'd be interested in this topic, whether to read or write about it, reach out to me. I would love to see how I could shape, you know, this idea in a way that really brings value to, to people and hopefully help them in, in their life. That sounds amazing. And as I was listening to you, there were so many nuggets of wisdom that were dropped here. I don't even know where to start because I have so many things to ask. I wasn't aware before actually the recording today that you were working on that, but it sounds super exciting. Hot feedback as I just hear about this concept. I've read a lot about analogies of teams and leadership from coaches, like sports and the mindset of leadership in the teams, baseball and basketball. And it's fascinating and it's something very relatable as well, where you can understand how it works. And I believe actually a lot, sometimes we talk about teams working as family, but I believe actually it's closer to sport teams because we are not family in the end. Uh, it's quite different. And this angle, especially in gaming, gave me the spark just by talking about it. I would love to read uh, about analogy of athletes, like the mindset and all the things you learn that you can apply in leadership that you have practiced. So super exciting personal project and yeah for the audience or if also myself in anything I can help I'd love to contribute that's awesome thank you very much <laughs> and, and yeah don't get me started too much on the details because I think we could spend then the whole hour on that <laughs> let's be patient a year from now or months I don't know when you have made progress on the clarity of your project I'm pretty sure it would be an interesting conversation of what was the process for you and what you've created with early concept, but sounds really exciting. And just for the context here, you talk about a sport. What is the sport you're practicing and you've been passionate about since you're young? So I've done many different kinds of sports, actually. I, I think that's a bit as well why it's you know interesting because I've been very curious to try new things, see where were my strengths, where maybe stuff I wasn't super good at, and also discover more individual sports, team sports. So I, I practiced many different kind of things, but the one I'm uh, really into currently is cycling. I started in 2016 and it's interesting because as I was doing sports for quite a long time, I started actually very strong, you know, reaching like the top of the leaderboards on, on <laughs> Strava. And so I was quite proud, but I think when I started to really learn is that I went a bit too strong, actually, you know, as I saw that I could be pretty good at it. Every time I would take my bike, I would go 200%, I would never rest. So it was always like doing more and more. And actually, I started to get worse and worse. So it's when I really started to think, okay, what, what is it that I need to do uh, to unlearn and relearn differently to actually start improving again? Here, I think it's a bit what, what I would like to write about, you know, all those things, like how I started to actually so many things, you know, my heart rate, uh, the power I would put in the in the pedal. I mean, there, there are so many little things that make a big difference in cycling. And, you know, cycling five, 
second faster in one climb, for example, is already a big achievement. And for me, that was new. You know, I, I used to set the bar very high, but without clear expectations of what I wanted to achieve. And with cycling and sports in general, it's where I, I started to really change a bit this mindset. It sounds really fascinating. I'm really looking forward to reading more about it because I, I don't know so much about cycling, but I, I can see for sure how you optimize this detail that by repetition actually lead to significant results. So, okay. And then I'm curious here, I understand like there's a passion around the sport and uh, you started quite young with it. What made it stay as a hobby or something on the side for you and not as a professional career? And uh, like how games fit into that? Because I It seems like a strong passion as well sport for you. Hmm. So that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I guess for long, I didn't necessarily think that I could make a living uh, of sports, you know, so it, it has always been there. I think I actually started at six or seven years old or so. I've always done sports, but I think it, it stayed a, a hobby until now. And I, I think at the end, it's, it's also nice, you know, to see that when you start making it for a living, then it, it becomes a bit different. So I, I had a few years as a Zumba teacher. I don't know if you know Zumba, but I gave classes to, to people. I actually, when I started at King, uh, I actually did that for a bit. And when you start really teaching and it becomes, you know, another job on top of your job and you need to prepare the classes, you need to be very creative in the choreographies, it's like less fun, I will say. And when I look at professional cyclists, for example, it's really tough. So I, I kind of appreciate at the end to have this work-life balance. I think cycling and sport in general brings me uh, a lot. It's a nice disconnection nice way to be creative, disconnect, and also get energy. I can bring that energy, that creativity to my day-to-day -day work and, and with the teams. So, yeah, maybe I could have been a great professional cyclist or another sport, but I'm pretty happy, you know, like the path I took. I think it's very nice and well-balanced. I think you raise an important point here about balance, actually, where making a clear separation of what is work and activity you do for work for a living, because that's what it is uh, still at the end of the day, and an activity you do for the pleasure of doing it, right? And it, it is true. We assume that most people working in games, of course, love games, but it's a different story of making games and, you know, playing games. When you make something as your profession, It is for the result, with a result in mind. And I think it can sometimes not kill, but uh, affect uh, the process of how you can enjoy it for the sake of the activity. And it, it, it's different. So it's a great example here. I understand like why you kept that activity, maybe to keep enjoying it for what it is, the process of it, instead of trying to make a living uh, out of it and optimizing the result. Hmm. And, and gives a great balance as well. I, I believe when it's, we have all our head and focus about just work, 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 we don't have a distance. We are the nose too close to the problems. It's especially in positions like ours, actually a good clarity and thinking is super important and it helps you have something else you can be passionate about and not just your work as an obsession. Totally. And, and you know, sometimes... I mean, quite often, actually, people ask me, where do I get this energy from? Like, how do I go to work every time so energized? And 
even now that we do Zoom meetings and we are working uh, remotely since some time due, due to the pandemic and so on, it seems that I still manage to transmit this energy. For me, a big part is exactly because of that, like just disconnecting and making sure that every day I have at least one, two hours of training and doing something different. Yeah. And that's a great example of just to stay a little healthy for everybody, especially given the circumstances where we are all sitting, like it's, it's terrible, like now, like working from home because of that, where we have to readjust a bit, you know, our daily habits to be active. I, I don't even want to think of consequences of health in a few years from now, if we keep uh, working and sitting. So it's a good reminder. Okay, so let's come back to games and to what you're doing today. So I'm very intrigued also about the position you have as a head of experimentation on Candy Crush. I know King is a big company, Candy Crush, like the biggest product, very iconic. So I'm very curious, what is this role about? What's your mission? What are you doing? Sure. So my main mission as head of experimentation on Candy Crush is ultimately to deliver experiences that matter to our players, you know, experiences that will make their day happier uh, and more fun. As you said, Candy Crush is a game that is quite big. It's actually celebrating its 10 years anniversary this year. So that's a first in the casual and match three genre. We have players who started to play in 2012 that are still with us. As a developer, I think it's a very good problem to have. Obviously, you are quite happy when people stick <laughs> to your game, but it's also a big challenge. You know, how do you attract new players while also keeping your loyal ones engaged with fresh experiences? In that context, how do you innovate without breaking the core game that made millions of players fall in love in the first place? So this role, the experimentation team, is really about building a diverse, empowered, uh, and highly effective team who really care about the player, really understand what's the player experience with the game, and a team who actually innovates in the way we build those experiences that matter to the players. So basically, the, the, really the role as head of experimentation, I would say, that it's a bit like being an, you know, an entrepreneur at King. So a kind of mini CEO runs her own business within the bigger team and the bigger company. And in, in that sense, most of my time is spent between what I call kind of the three P's, you know, people, product and process. So on, on the people side, it's all about building this culture of experimentation. You know, how do we create a curious mindset, uh, a culture where people are constantly looking for new ways of doing things, are very curious to learn uh, new things and do things differently, but also are open to be proven wrong. Because at the end of the day, it's really, you know, experimentation. It's about writing hypotheses, assumptions, and testing them very fast. So it's really hiring the right people, making sure that they understand what experimentation is about. And then, of course, uh, the people side is also about performance management, one-to-one, -one and so on. And then on, on the product side, it's about really building the, the strategy, so identifying these problems and opportunities. I'm a strong advocate of OKRs, Objective Key Results, and I've been a bit of a pioneer at King, I have to say, uh, using this. For me, that great way, you know, to bring focus, keep the user at the center, build clear measures of success, they make you think hard about which outcomes and change of behaviors you want to see as a result of what you are building, instead of, you know, jumping into solution very fast, which as developers, we often do. 
So that's a big part of my role as well, working on that. And finally, processes. I believe that a great strategy, you know, is nothing without great execution. So I put a lot of effort on team dynamics, continuous improvement, tools and frameworks that enable teams to really be, you know, autonomous and forward in terms of decision making. With my team, we have developed a framework that really bridges, you know, qualitative and quantitative data to really understand better what's happening in the game and to test quick iterations to get learnings as fast as possible. And as part of that, we highly encourage the, the people in the team to join user tests, to really build empathy with the player. I myself join, you know, at least six user tests every month to really get closer to, to the user. So yeah, to summarize, I would say experimentation is about that, like building, innovating to build the best experiences and experiences that really matter to players. And how to do that is really about like these three P's and, you know, really having kind of a set of uh, guiding principles to get there. So I have some follow-up questions. It's very interesting and especially I, I believe Candy Crush is such almost probably a company inside the company, big product. So I'm curious about the organization of teams around, if you can, of course, uh, disclose a range of numbers. And what is the size of your team in this whole organization of Candy Crush? And how are you working with, I don't know if it's a development team or the live ops team to have your experiments uh, being part of a roadmap? So how does that work with different teams working on the same product? Yeah, so Candy Crush is definitely a big team. So without giving an exact number, it's around 300 people. So as you said, it's actually quite a big company within the bigger company. And my team is almost 60 people. So it's also a very big team. It's composed of smaller teams that are multidisciplinary. So we have user researchers, data scientists, designers, developers, and QA people as well. So it's really like bringing all those crafts together, empower them to really make uh, decisions. So uh, at the end of the day, for me, it's really about connecting and empowering people and focusing on what they are best at or so really understanding the, the team dynamic and yeah, building a team with values such as, you know, trust, empowerment, accountability, uh, transparency, honesty, and so on. So, that's about the culture and how I work with the team and then how we test. So we built, as I said, this framework, you know, where we bridge qualitative, quantitative, and that's mainly through how the teams are composed and how they work together, yeah, the different craft, but also very quick iterations. So we always start with a hypothesis, an assumption, and then there are some things that we test without any code at all. You know, if we can actually test something, put it out there during a user test, to get a sense of, okay, there is appetite for that, or there is no appetite, or it won't work, then we might kill the idea before even developing anything. And if we do develop something because we see potential, then we try to keep it very short, like one week, two weeks, and just edit test it and see how players react. So it's really about being you know, fast to market to see uh, if there is an appetite very early on. Great. And... Um... As you experiment things, what is your measure of success as a unit? So that's a great question. And it's where we do work within the bigger team. So when we work on the OKRs for the year, we cascade the main opportunities and things that we want to do as a Candy Crush team. And here we define a bit more specifically what are the things that our team is going to look at. 
So it, I would say it can vary a lot, but at, at the end of the day, it's what we, we really focus on, as I said, is really trying to focus on outcome and not too much on outputs. So it's not so much about, of course, output matters. The more experiments we do, the more chance we will have to find something that people will enjoy. But at the end of the day, it's, I, I believe the best measure of success is to when we see that we were first identifying something that people really enjoy and that they will they will stick with. So yeah, but I would say it's about players' behavior and some KPIs around that, you know, how people interact with the feature. Yeah. I was asking about that specifically because especially when you try to innovate, experiment things, you take more risk, of course, and you don't control the outcome. Still, at the end of the day, the outcome matters because this is financially as what the company is looking at. That's why I was curious of how you're measuring, yeah, approaching it when you're still experimenting and trying new things, which probably would be a series of failures. So maybe a second part of the question here is, You have uh, like goals with outcomes that you should generate from this unit. But for you, then personally, because you don't control the outcome, what are your criteria of success, you know, that make you feel good about the work you've been doing with your team? So I do have OKR some goals for myself as well. And for me, I will say, because at the end of the day, I really kind of trust and empower the team to come up with the solutions. It's a lot more about how much of, you know, the OKRs that and, and the goals that we built with the team have been achieved in a given quarter. And it's, if it's 70% or more for me, it's okay. There are stuff that I definitely did great in how I shed the team or define the objectives with them and, you know, how I'm empowering them to come up with the solutions, also being there to support, ask questions and so on. So I, I would say for me, ultimately, the performance of the team and yeah, how much did they achieve of the, of the goals is definitely my measure of success together with how engaged they are. So for me, that's a very critical thing. I, I, I believe that the more the teams are engaged, the greater the experiences they will build will be. So it's about those two things. Mm-hmm. And so as you are managing also a big team, 60 people, Personally, I've never managed such a big team. So I have also, you know, my principle of leadership that are on small teams, which apply, but I have no idea if I could uh, apply the same principle if I had a bigger team tomorrow. So you mentioned, of course, some of your principles with the analogy of sport, but what are the main ones you're really applying like for your team and your leadership style for this role? To be honest, I think 60-ish is definitely the biggest team I ever led in my experience. I I started a few years ago with teams around 30 plus, which is already quite a a good size. And I would say the main challenge is to really break the silos. You know, the bigger, the, the more silos will be created. And if you want to keep this collaboration and so on, it's really about yeah, what's your vision, what's your values and and how you work. I think back to uh, a bit, you know, these guiding principles that I was mentioning before, those are very important. And we really took the time when we reshaped the team, you know, these 60 people to work with the team in building those principles. So they were part of the process uh, and they understand where uh, do these principles come from. And, and for me, that's very important. So we, we have four that I can, I can share. You know, the first one is we are user-centric and we build empathy with our players. The second one is we fall in love with the problem before jumping into solutions. 
The third one is we focus on outcomes, always asking why. And the fourth is we think big, but start small to learn fast. And at the end, those are things that whatever the team will do and whatever the size, we all know that this is how we work and we all have a vision of what we want to, to achieve. So for me, the, the OKRs, those guiding principles and the values is how you keep even a big team effective and engaged. It's great and very inspiring to hear about these principles. Some I can relate to as well as I have built a them for my team and I know how hard it is to come up with a short list right so I, I was curious as well how long did it take for you to settle on a list and how how consistent have you stayed also with that list uh, you know after you build the team on several years so it took some time right? it's been an iterative process I think at the beginning we had probably a list of maybe 10 principles or so but to be honest now we have four and I think ideally we will have three I, I, I think people don't stick like 10 is too many. And then at the end, you don't really use them on your day-to-day. -day. So how long did it take? I'm not exactly sure, but I would say a year or so, to be honest, for people to really integrate the principles and understand why they were those principles. And I guess the challenge is also, as you have a bit of attrition or new people uh, joining, is really to keep those alive as well. And here... I will say that my team is amazing because, to be honest, they are great. They manage to evangelize and they are great ambassadors of those guiding principles. And for me, actually, that's another measure of success, you know, to your point earlier. Like when people really are ambassadors of how you work, the values and so on, then it's that you did something right. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, so now let's take a step back from your current position and more Having a snapshot also on your journey in gaming. So you have also a, a lot of experience, like 14 years in gaming and started as a producer, so art director. So my first question is from your very first position in gaming, how did you evolve to bigger companies or also bigger position? How did that happen for you, you know, this evolution in your career? So first, it's funny because I think I started into gaming a bit by chance. You know, I studied visual communication. And as I was working as a graphic designer, it's actually a friend of mine who contacted me to create the website of the most successful game at the time, which was called Mystery Tell. Uh, it was actually a hidden object game where you needed to find a cute little dog who had disappeared in, in a neighborhood. And so I, I started to, I worked on that website. I had actually a lot of fun. And the founders of the company who was called What Entertainment, it was a couple, wife and husband, Frédéric and Sébastien. They, they were so happy with the work on, on the website that they actually offered me to join as an art director. <laughs> so that was kind of a big jump, you know, like from creating a few pages, <laughs> like a website to being an art director. But I decided to take the challenge and see how it was going. So it was at the same time being like thrilled, but a bit scared as well. And I joined as an art director on the second title of Mystery 10. I had a team of, I believe, four or five artists who were creating the hidden object scenes. And I was also working on other productions like Totally Spice, My Secret Agenda from Nintendo DS, a few Facebook games as well. I was quite hands-on at the time. You know, I was doing a lot of UX designer work without knowing that it was UX designer work at the time. So looking at the first time user experience, interface, that was kind of my first leadership role, I will say, like leading a team, a small team of artists. At one point, Sebastian was the husband and, and co-founder 
I had a conversation with him, so I don't exactly recall the context, you know, if it was kind of an end of your review evaluation or the end of a production. But he told me, look, Delphine, I, we definitely see potential in you as a leader, but you are kind of a terrible art director. It's been, you know, very tough. Uh, feedback, like I'm nothing to that, but at the time it's been a bit tough, but he, he was so right. You know, I think for me, giving feedback to the art team on lighting, doing concept art and drawing characters, that, that wasn't my thing at all. Like I studied visual communication. My strengths were really in building creative solutions to solve complex communication problems. So a lot more like, you know, logos, uh, concept for TV spots and stuff like that. And I was lucky enough that as they did acknowledge that I potentially had something in terms of leadership that they offered me to become a producer. It was a small company. So I'm, I'm so grateful that they saw this potential and they gave me this opportunity because I, I wouldn't necessarily thought about that myself. And I think I would probably have said, okay, I just quit, probably go back to graphic design. And yeah, and I, it was a very small company. So I had the chance to do everything like community management, marketing and user acquisition, product management, game design production. So even though my title was producer, I was kind of already working you know, on really the, the big picture and the holistic view of the product. So it's how I started in the leadership role, I would say. And it's when the journey uh, started. It's a great story because uh, although I don't know the company and practices of leadership happen uh, everywhere, right? Not necessarily in big organization. And what you have shared is like someone giving you feedback while you're not doing well. I think it's a gift. Unfortunately, we don't all receive that and we can stay for years uh, blind never receiving the feedback and just thinking we are doing well, which is the worst. So it sounds like a great founder who had the courage or maturity to, first of all, give the feedback. And also another practice we do in leadership is identifying the skills of a person. And uh, sometimes when a person is not performing in the a position, it can be for many reasons, motivations, skills misfit, you know, many things. And identifying that and putting you in a place where you would be a better fit. I think it's great so early, you know. So yeah, praise to uh, that co-founder for making this call and giving you this opportunity to grow in where you are today. Yeah, definitely. It, it actually inspired me a lot. And I think it's where I identified in myself as well this kind of strength and passion for also identifying these opportunities for, for others. So I think it triggered a bit in me, like if he saw that, like maybe I can also help others, you know, find what could be the next step for them. I was really lucky, you know, because this company was very small, as we said, but he saw the potential. And on the other hand, his wife, Frédéric, I, I think she's been an inspiring leader for me. You know, I was very lucky to start in the gaming industry with a female leader, someone who really inspired me in the way that she showed vulnerability, but at the same time she took risks. I don't know, you know, so many core values that I brought with me in the next experiences. So yeah, definitely, I think it was a, a very great start and probably I've been very lucky to start this way in the gaming industry. And I'm curious then from your position as producer, what happened for you in your uh, personal and professional development to grow to the position you probably joined King? What are the realizations that developed for you to be in the role you are today? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, sure. 
So when I joined King, I started as a producer. I worked on Pyramid Solitaire Saga. It was a very short development time. We launched the game six months, I think, after I joined. And then I took on producer and then senior producer and then executive producer roles in, in different games. And I think at the time it was kind of a bit of firefighter, you know, like situation and opportunity in the sense that as uh, I did well on Pyramid, highly effective team, very engaged, there was that game, Scrubby Dubby Saga, that wasn't really off a good start, needed to be fixed, numbers weren't really great. So I was sent there as a producer. We launched the game in 2015, and then kind of the same story happened with Diamond Diaries Saga, which wasn't doing very well, so I started to also work on the game as, as a senior producer. So it's been kind of a series of opportunities. I think in that sense, King is a big company with a big portfolio of games. At first, it's definitely been this way, you know, one opportunity after another. Having kind of this firefighter brand, I think it's how it started. That being said, as I kind of built more self-confidence and I clarified where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do, I then started to really build my own opportunities as well. So I think that's the moment where I have been promoted to executive producer at the time I was working on Candy Crush Soda Saga. And actually on that year, my team brought 90% of you know the features revenue. So those numbers kind of also spoke by themselves. It's how I, I could also change role and take the head of experimentation in Candy Crush Saga. So yeah, I would say it's been a, a lot of work, a lot of coaching on the background, but definitely a mix of opportunities and building myself those opportunities. Something important that you mentioned, and I think uh, as I asked this question to you, actually many different uh, women as well who grew in big executive position, at some point you create your own opportunities. Can you tell us more with examples how it looked for you? So I think at, at the end, it all comes back to like clarifying what I wanted to do and how I wanted to work. So I think at first, that's why I kind of jumped from a project to another. As I said, my branding was more about firefighting. And then I started to actually understand that it was important for me to be in my brand so that I could kind of provoke those opportunities, but people will also think about me in different ways. At the end, it's a bit like when you are an actor and you start in movies that are very funny. Sometimes it's hard to move to a different kind of, a different genre. So I, I worked a lot on that, on my personal branding. And I wanted people to understand that what really mattered to me was this way of working, you know, being very user-centric and like testing quickly, experimenting. So really try to associate my branding a lot more to this experimentation mindset and way of working, which in the gaming industry is, I think we see more and more of that, but it's still a bit, how to say, it, it's still very green, right? We, we used to still work sometimes in very old fashion with long development times and so on. So, yeah, I, I would say it's been putting a lot of effort on that for people within the company to think about me for different kind of roles, but also myself, of course, doing a bit of investigation of, you know, what's happening. As I said, King is a big company with different titles, different yeah, games and big portfolio. So really understanding how it was moving and what were the opportunities that were going to arise. Yeah. I think here you share an important point, but I wanted to summarize here because it's a very actionable point for people listening and who want to grow in the career. You mentioned first clarity, right? Having a clarity and vision of where you want to go, you know, not just following like 
as you started, like you go where uh, the work is needed and you, uh, you know, take the opportunity. So you take more than you create and create results uh, with the opportunity what is given to you. And I think that's a great mindset at the beginning when you want to learn, get experience. I was also doing a lot of this, this, those moves at the start of my career without thinking about it. But now it makes me reflect. So first the clarity and then I think the second uh, takeaway I have is like having, uh, building your personal branding. So so people see you in a certain way. And I think it's something we don't think often about, but it matters so much because especially in big organizations, people don't know you personally and they will never know you, but they, they will remember you by your actions, your attitude, your behavior in a very, um, I would say, limited way. So you can control that a bit more in how you want to appear to others. Sometimes when I coach so my team that People want to hear this reality, but it's the reality. Your image, what you manifest matters. So it seems like there was a lot of consciousness in the personal branding you wanted to build and it worked that way. So I would take that second takeaway, like envision also your personal branding, the impression you want to make and what the actions you do to support yeah, your, your standing, your positioning. And also something that we don't talk so openly about, but it's it's part of a game. It's to be aware of the opportunities, especially in big organization. And it's basically internal networking, being close to people in different teams, in different roles, being aware and being ready and showing interest and positioning yourself early in future opportunities. Because these things don't happen accidentally. You create your own. And very important as well, because yeah, sometimes we look at things from external, it's like, oh, how did that happen with promotion of his role? And you are exactly revealing that it's a lot of work. There's a lot of intention as well. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for summarizing. Yeah, because they are very important points. And if people don't learn, then they never know. And I think the, the harm here is to believe that you need to wait for someone to create the opportunity for you. But the reality is not like that, especially in higher roles. And I had a question, like, I wonder, as we grow in our career, we always need some help. And I think there's a switch at some point where we realize we need some help, like coaching and mentoring. So I wanted to ask you, in your experience, have you benefited from either coaching or mentoring? And how was this experience for you in the most recent ones? Yeah, uh, so actually, I was super lucky that when I joined King, like almost from the very beginning, I started with a coach. So the manager I had at the time strongly believed in coaching, and I'm really grateful that actually he built a business case for me to get one. And, and the first one was on emotional intelligence. And for me, that's been my first eye-opener, uh, and I think a big enabler in my career. Like as a leader, you you need to be calm, show confidence to your teams, even though insights, uh, you are full of, of doubts or sometimes you are maybe a bit frustrated or, or angry. So really managing your, your emotions, uh, I think it's been critical. And actually, I did have a, so it's not super recent, but I did have a aha moment in that coaching. I remember a one-to-one -one with one artist in my team where we were talking about his growth and the opportunities and so on. And as we were closing the one-to-one, -one, I don't know actually how it came, but he told me, look, I, I don't ask you how you are because you look super strong. And it seems that you are always doing so well. <laughs> and it left me, you know, I was like, wow, so that's really what I sent to people, you know, an image of someone who is not affected by anything. And, and while I think that, of course, it's good, but sometimes if you want people to help you, to support you, you do need to also show vulnerability and 
find the balance between, of course, being too transparent and telling your life with all the details, but also opening to at least uh, a few emotions or, or building this connection. So how to be authentic while still building confidence. And th that for me was, yeah, as I said, really a, a moment and a great way to start with coaching. To be honest, I couldn't stop after, so I had <laughs> two other coaches, one on, on strategy. This one was kind of a lot more theoretical, you know, a bit about how to build, sell a strategy and how to execute on it. So it was a lot more about tools, frameworks, processes. And the third one, it's still ongoing today. It's my coaches, Marta, she's incredible. And I worked a lot with her on this personal branding, how to manage up and a bit of stress management as well as starting in this new position for me was new and I was out of my comfort zone, not most of the time, but I will say quite often. And she helped me a lot in that. And my haha moment actually in that one, which is very recent. I mean, I don't know if it's kind of a fun thing or not, but I, I realized I could actually apply, you know, the same techniques that I was using with my team to manage down to actually manage up. So at the end of the day, it's really building relationships, asking the right questions, listening, aligning on expectations very early on. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I found it fun because I was imagining that it was going to be super complex. And at the end, I'm not saying it's easy, but I saw many parallels with how I was managing my own team. It's a great example. And I want to double down on the last one you shared about managing upwards, because that was also same realization where you, you try to look for a formula. Like, it's so hard. What, what do you... What else do you need to do? It's like which angle, which strategy or tactic or whatever. And then you realize it's just you need to switch your mindset. It's the same. And I think the main takeaway for me was empathizing with leadership, which is something we don't do. And I, you probably know as well in the position as a leader. But we are missing a lot of that as well when uh, managing a team. It's a lonely role. Like we are dealing with a lot of things that no one can understand. And then probably our superiors, they are probably dealing with even other things that we don't understand. And it's helpful actually to understand a little bit, to have compassion. That was the main thing for me as well. Like, why is this attitude? Why is this so tense? Why, you know, you, uh, you can learn so much. Yeah, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. It's a journey. Definitely. And as you said, it's also senior leadership. Sometimes it's also their time is very precious. So you need to also to be very effective when you have meetings with, with those people, right? And, and I think you say very well as an introduction to your podcast, how asking the right question can be very powerful. And for me, that has been as well during the coaching, something I trained a lot, how to actually ask the right questions. It's not easy and it really requires practice. I, I think at the end, I was really bad at it. And when you start asking the right questions you really see the difference right you, you start getting the right insights yeah totally so let's move on the last part that is more so on reflection as we talked a lot about leadership if you had to look back in uh, your early 20 year old self what would you tell to younger delphine with the experience you have today and why i would say i was quite lucky to find my path very, very early. So I think in my 20s or 25 years old, I was already doing what I'm still doing today and what I enjoy doing. But that being said, I, I think for me, an important thing is defining your values very early on, you know, and, and follow them. So I often heard, you know, from my managers that I needed to know what I wanted to do in five years or 10 years to define my next steps. 
And to be honest, I understand that works really well for many people. But for me, it, it hasn't really worked. You know, first, I think our industry, the world is changing very fast. So I, I much prefer to think that, you know, opportunities will arise as I build a network with people who share the same values and as I clarify what matters to me and also the things I wouldn't compromise on. So I had this one professional experience in the past that has been very hard, um, actually working on a very toxic environment. There was a lot of ego. I suffered a bit of bullying. I mean, definitely not a place where I, I felt I, I wanted to grow. And if I could go back a bit and, and give one one advice is really, you know, when you join a company, like talk to enough people to understand what is the culture and what what are the values. It, it's really important. And I could see that companies, I will really shine because of the context and the culture. And in that experience, at, at the end, I ended up like really thinking, I should do another job. You know, I'm not good at what I'm doing. So it, it makes such a difference, the people who surround you. So that will be my main advice to my younger self. I don't know if you know this, say, that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Also related to that, it's like uh, we are so connected and influencing each other in so deep ways that it has an impact who you spend time with. Yeah, and, and you know, I read also, there is one book that really inspired me. I read it maybe four years ago now. It's called Multipliers from Liz Wiseman. Maybe you read it. Many people, maybe in the audience, there are people who read it. If not, I really recommend it. And, and in, in that book, it, it's so it talks about how great leaders multiply others and identify talent, superpowers. But it also talks about a very important piece, which is that actually one toxic person in a team will make five, at least five people unproductive, unhappy. For me, that has been, when I read that book, I was like, wow, I, I really need to put effort on that. And I actually spent time in removing toxicity, making sure we had the right people. And that resonates a bit with my own experience. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm mentioning it. And so for the position you have today, like, okay, in production, product management as well, what would you say are the main important skills in the end to to grow there? Yeah, it's a good question. And for me, I would say, of course, there are some hard skills to have about strategic planning, thinking, balancing short and long term, uh, but also being a decision maker, a problem solver, and selling and communicating in a very effective way. But I would say that for me, the most critical will be the soft skills and this inner work that you do on yourself. So really, like empathy, resilience, and courage as well. You know, like at, at the end, if you want to make a change, you are going to take risks. And yeah, those are the ones that are probably the most difficult to work on, but for me, the most important. Like if you don't have that, if you don't know how to build empathy, you don't know how to challenge yourself and learn relearn, then the hard skills you, you will have, they will be a bit for nothing to some extent. And, and actually, I would say one that is not mentioned very often, but I, I will add humor as well. I watched a TED talk very recently, which it's called Why Great Leaders Take Humor Seriously. It was very nice to see that, yeah, at the end of the day, if you know, you have fun, people are more engaged, they do greater things that they can celebrate, so they have more fun. And then you are in this virtuous circle of, of things. Yeah, for me, humor is super important. So I try to also use it uh, as much as possible. 
I agree. I actually also heard this quality trait very important from uh, Jim Rohn uh, recently, and it's underestimated like to connect and it's it's first to be funny. It's not everybody can be funny, right? It's not something you can just make up. But also, it's how you approach very serious situation, in not a dramatic way to make it worse, right? I think it's this humorous carry is like I have seen as well situations where you know, okay, your game is not launching, we're losing money, or there's a big crash and some players cannot play, and this can go in crisis very quickly. And how do you approach that? in a serious way, but still light and humorous. And this is an art. Yeah, definitely. I encourage you to watch that TED Talk if you haven't, because I think they are touching on what you are saying, you know, like there are people who think they are not funny, so they won't try. But actually, there are ways, you know, to to do this, and, and it can be very small and your own way. But as you said, it makes a difference and it matters. Mm-hmm. So we are reaching also the end of our conversation, and I'd like to end it with three rapid-fire questions. So uh, you don't know about them, and the idea is to answer what's in your mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> so my first question is, what is the thing that is occupying the most your thoughts these days? Wow, okay. I will answer in a very short way, but it's actually a very heavy topic. My, my father has been diagnosed with cancer last summer, and I have to say that it's been... Yeah, it's been very difficult month, but actually, as we speak, he's supposed to leave the hospital today, so I'm crossing fingers that everything goes well. But yeah, definitely, it has been tough. It has made me think a lot about my priorities in life and doubled down on those values and what was important to me. And thanks for sharing, and I wish that your father will be well. Thank you. And so my second question is, what is the thing you fear the most these days? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I would say, yeah, pr- probably how to say, so like losing a bit the social connection, you know, l- l- due to COVID and so on, I think I stopped some of the activities I was doing before. I kept this sense of belonging to a community with the cycling community. So it goes mainly through that. But yeah, I, I could see that I could quickly maybe really, you know, focus on work and so on and maybe not do so many of those activities. So I don't know if it's a fear, but it's actually something I want to double down this year, you know, like make sure I keep seeing my friends, even though there is COVID and it's like a bit different. Yeah, like keeping this social life. And last question, one sentence that is your motto in life? I would say, for me, it will be, it is going to sound a bit like Nike, but I can do it. You know, for me, it's all about that. Like so starting um, and facing every new challenge or, or opportunity with a, a positive mindset. That's a great one. Thanks. Delphine, there was a lot we talked about today and a lot of things also I learned. So it's amazing. And I'm very excited also to follow up later on your new project, personal project with book, sport and everything. So I hope we can record something together again. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sophie. It was very nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, rate and review the podcast, spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership. Until the next time, 